Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 7th, 18th. It's the 18th today, a Friday, the end of another surreal week when it comes to business and um, startups and technology and entrepreneurs. Uh, hasn't been a great week, I don't think, for entrepreneurs. Very odd kind of week. Uh, there's a mutiny at Twitter just down the road from me in San Francisco. Elon Musk wants the pinup of startup entrepreneurs and technology on the West Coast has incited a mutiny there. Everyone's quitting. Hundreds of people. It's possible that Twitter will just simply collapse. Um, it, it, it's, it's a very interesting, I think, moment in, in a rejection of a certain kind of entrepreneur, at least. And everyone now is investigating Musk, not just the popular culture, but even Democratic senators who want to look much more carefully at what he's up to. Meanwhile, other entrepreneurs are in trouble. A young man called Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, who ran um, uh, a crypto exchange platform called FTX, uh, has been in the news. Uh, he lost over 30, maybe $40 billion in a few hours. Uh, he's based in the Bahamas, but it's quite possible that he's going to be uh, investigated uh, by, um, by the police. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up in jail. He was a pinup for something called effective altruism. He gave away much of his ill-gotten gain to effective altruists, but even the effective altruists now don't want to have much to do with him. Meanwhile, crypto seems to be in free fall. The FT ran a, a piece today, a conversation featuring Coinbase's Brian Armstrong. He says he's just as bullish on crypto as ever. That must be about as profound a lie as I've ever heard. No one is bullish on crypto, even people in it. Um, more and more people are losing huge amounts of money. Perhaps uh, the most distinguished or best-known Japanese uh, investor, uh, Masayoshi Son, uh, been revealed this week that he, owe, he owes almost $5 billion to SoftBank. Uh, and just to cap everything off, as if, as if this isn't enough, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the fraudulent or seemingly fraudulent um, entrepreneur behind Theranos, uh, is going to be sentenced today. Both the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, uh, the world's two leading financial newspapers, cover this in some detail. For some, it's... Entrepreneurs are still our heroes. My friend Keith Teer, who I do a show with, that was the week, which I'm going to do later, has a newsletter this week defending the crazy ones, including San Musk and Bankman Freed. But I think Keith is rather unusual in defending these people. I'm very curious to know what my guest today, Derek Lida, a very distinguished uh, entrepreneur in his own right and a professor of a uh, of entrepreneurial studies at Princeton University. He has a new book out, The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value. Um, the book is just out. Derek, uh, how pessimistic are you? Is this been just another week for entrepreneurs or are we talking about a, 
a turning point, a moment where we begin to rethink what entrepreneurs are and what they should be? I think it's a turning point. Um, what we're seeing an end of an era. Uh, I, I refer to it as the get big fast era where, which was launched in the mid nineties in a particular moment and has fueled a lot of the highest profile strategies like the Vision Fund and SoftBank who were successful for a while at throwing large amounts of money at new ideas and by virtue of how much money they threw at it, they could create the appearance of value for other investors and make profit themselves off of, off of that largesse. Uh, that's coming to a close. Um, and when we see it unfolding in real time, uh, and this week will probably be, you know, remembered as, as one of those turning points. Tell me a little bit about your background, Derek. Uh, you, you wear a number of different hats. You began your life as a corporate man, as an entrepreneur, and now you're an academic. Um, do you think that wearing the many hats is helpful in terms of making sense, not just of economics, but also of politics and perhaps the morality associated with being a, an entrepreneur, the responsibility that we have or entrepreneurs should have back to society? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I have a fairly unique background because I was the CEO of a large global semiconductor company publicly held. Um, I then did something very few successful CEOs do. I, I went and I started my own company from scratch, grew that to being a, a global leader. And then when that was bought by a, a much, much, much larger organization, Princeton invited me to come and teach entrepreneurship and share with students, both practical and, you know, scholarly um, uh, teachings about uh, how to be a successful entrepreneur. And the three distinct, very different leadership styles required and the different sets of questions that are asked uh, in those contexts has definitely informed me and my research on how entrepreneurship actually works and prompted me to throw out or, or you know, uh, want to go beyond the, the, the narrative, uh, the, the current mindset, which I thought was ultimately way too narrow and uh, was not reflective of what entrepreneurship actually is and how it actually works. You begin the book very provocatively. Uh, I'm quoting you here in the preface. Uh, you write, I was asked by a student on my first day teaching at Princeton, what's the key to being a good entrepreneur? Now, of course, one might say good meaning successful, good meaning moral, good meaning popular. Uh, what are 
perhaps is, is there is there a single key, Derek, or, or are there many keys? Well, what 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 is good is is de defined by society, and um, what what's you know good, whether or not it it reflects uh, a morality, uh, or reflects a fashion, or reflects a a uh, some sort of metric of of goodness is uh, changes with time and in place. Um, but you can't just relativize it entirely. You've you've written about Steve Jobs. Um, yeah. You ask uh, in a, in an interesting Forbes piece yeah. how Steve Jobs scores on the Wedgwood Innovation Scale. Is Steve Jobs or was Steve Jobs a great entrepreneur in any context in any historical moment? Uh, I believe he was. I believe that he pushed the envelope and delivered uh, things to, to millions of people that made them happier. And um, th that, you know, makes him a successful entrepreneur. Um, I, I think he cared about his customers and um, their joy and well-being in using his products more than most entrepreneurs. And I believe that that gave him also, um, you know, a, a, a he, he was an entrepreneur that cared about well-being beyond just momentary happiness. And I, I, I think that that is a very important distinction among entrepreneurs. Although he was brutal to work for, I know a lot of people who work for him and most of them hate him. Yes, and 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 that that was a problem. He, if I could say, he was an asshole. Um, but he developed a style, a mitigation for that, by working only with a very close group, a hand, two handfuls worth of people that he then delegated to work with everybody else to minimize his interaction and his. Um, uh, abrasiveness on, on the larger workforce. I could see um, in a different historical context, maybe a lot of people walking out when Jobs made his pronouncements. Is Musk himself just a, a casualty of history in another age, 10, 20 years ago? Could he have got away with what he's trying to get away with, with in, in Twitter and yet there's this mutiny? Is, is Musk a, a good entrepreneur in your uh, in your view? Uh, I, I think he's swerving away from that. He's, I, I believe he's drinking too much of his own Kool-Aid and believing that he's invincible and that what, what he says is, is right just because he says it and that everybody in the world should follow his lead. And I think that that is a, a huge problem. And I believe that we're seeing $44 billion worth of value quickly evaporate because of, of this folly. Uh, I don't think he could have pulled this off 20 years ago, 10 years ago, because the, the technology, uh, involved with running large, fast-growing enterprises like Tesla and SpaceX and 
the Boeing company. And now with him wanting to be the CEO of a fourth or fifth company, um, wasn't possible 10 years ago. And he's pushing the envelope and trying to demonstrate that he's, you know, the greatest that's ever lived, that he can run five companies uh, simultaneously. He can't, and he's destroying value and he's destroying people's lives. He's destroying, um, uh, you know, uh, otherwise valuable, uh, very valuable and unique communication channel. And he's destructive. I'm very intrigued with your argument, Derek, that we're at the end of a, of a moment in the history of entrepreneurship. We did a show a few months ago with Sebastian Malaby, mm -hmm. the British financial journalist. He's written a, a very good book on venture capital. In fact, the history of venture capital It's one of the finalists for the FT book of the year. My pushback on you is if, if there is always venture capital to throw at these markets, whatever they are, biotech, the internet, media, AI. Uh, why is anything going to be different in the future? Well, for, for, first off, I'd like to point out that venture capital is, a, is an ancient, ancient thing. So in, my, in my book, I give examples of, of venture capitalists 4,000 years ago that were that form 10-year limited liability partnerships. In, in Southwest, you, you, yeah, your book is quite historical. You deal with uh, profit-making in Southwest Spain, in the Mediterranean, but you didn't have the Sequoias and the SoftBanks throwing billions of dollars. Uh, no. You didn't have a Mark Andreessen in Southwest Spain in the fourth century BC. Correct. And, and so this era that we're in now, the, there was this turning point where at the Netscape IPO, where valuations no longer were based upon uh, projected profits, but were based as a ratio of growth rate. And the analysts of the time used that to justify what was then a sky high valuation for, for Netscape with limited profitability and limited, uh, you know. And of course revenue. that was Mark Andreessen's company. Now he's probably the most powerful venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Exactly, exactly. And so at that moment, the game changed to, okay, it makes sense to invest in enterprises that are gonna grow fast. And at first, you know, that meant, okay, we're gonna uh, focus more on, you know, the digital economy, the emerging, you know, internet and the like. But then venture capitalists, because they're, they're smart, uh, realized that, oh my God, you know, the more I invest in a startup, the faster I can make it look like it grows. And therefore the valuation will justify, I will self-justify my investment by the growth rate that I generate. And, and, the investors that they then sold their shares to uh, bought into this and uh, you know, bought the shares of companies that took a long time. Some of them like Twitter were barely profitable forever, you know? And, um, and so now this, uh, is, is being really tested. And I believe that uh, 
many investors will back away from this paradigm and um, maybe they'll adopt a new one or maybe they'll go back to the old one. I, I believe that the disaster that's uh, transforming in front of everybody with Twitter is Musk's failed attempt at get big fast as a ancillary strategy to buying Twitter. When he first was talking about, hey, I'm going to buy Twitter, he was saying, hey, I can make this thing grow really fast, really you know, quickly, and that's going to make me even more of a billionaire. Uh, and, and then he realized, you know, you can't do that with an established company the same way that you could do that. Right. Uh, it's weird with, with Musk and Twitter. If Marx was around, he would have a great phrase to describe it. But Musk seems to be nostalgic for another age. And he's trying to transform Twitter, as you say, from a, a $45 billion public company into a startup. And he's quite literally um, destroying value to do that. He's firing everyone. He's undermining the brand. Um, I mean, maybe he'll have the last laugh. I mean, it's possible. A lot of people wrote him off at, at Tesla until he slept in the factory for six months and, and turned it into one of the most influential companies in history. So it, it's hard to write a man like Musk off because of his determination, isn't it, Derek? Or, or do you think he's bound inevitably to fail, to, to go back, to, to try to turn Twitter into a sort of a classic web 2.0 startup to reverse the clock, to wind things back to the 1990s? Well, SpaceX was a, be you know, a beautiful startup, um, very bold and innovative. And I give him a lot of credit for, for Tesla as well. I mean, Tesla wasn't an overnight sensation. Neither was SpaceX. No, and, and Tesla's particularly incredible because everybody wrote it off. Everyone shorted the stock, yeah. which enabled him to 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 to, to encourage to, to to convince the company to to almost bet its own value on him. So that's why he's so rich. Yeah, and and so he deserves a lot of credit for that. He's he's a brilliant uh, entrepreneur. But this is a bridge too far with, with Twitter that uh, he, he can't utilize the same strategies that he utilized with, with, um, with Tesla in particular uh, on a company with huge infrastructure, glo global you know, employees and customers. And uh, you, you, you can't just dismantle it and, and rebuild it in in a period of time that customers don't notice. So, yeah, this is going to be his, his um, water. This is his, uh, his Waterloo, a bridge yeah. too far. Lots of uh, cliches on this one. You wrote an interesting piece for the journal about what, what you called the valuation sensation distortion. And you reminded us that in the United States, 5 million people every year attempt to become entrepreneurs. Do you think... And, and 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 I'm to blame for this in the in in the kind of questions I've been asking you. But do you think we focus too much on the the Steve Jobs and the Elon Musks and the Sam Bankman Freeds, and we should be focusing when we think of entrepreneurs on ordinary people setting up a store, an idea, an online business that may generate a few hundred thousand dollars if people are lucky? Should we be focusing more on? Um, 
are, are on the masses of entrepreneurs that define American economy? So I'll say neither. We should be focusing on neither because both of them are misleading. And so my, my recent book, uh, which, which looks at entrepreneurship in all different cultures and in all different times, points out that entrepreneurship as the single greatest source of change on the whole planet is a collective phenomena and not an individual phenomenon. So it's not big or small. It's the fact that entrepreneurs watch one what one another do, the big ones and the small ones, and they copy one another. They copy what works. And then as they copy what works, they can't help but personalize that copying. Well, you know, hey, this is easier for me to do that thing this way than what the way they were doing it, or, hey, I think it looks better this way or whatever. But in that personalization, this swarm of entrepreneurs that are collectively going after these uh, identified pots of value creation are evaluating which of these personalizations work better than others. And those are the ones that then get copied and that creates the foundation from which the next set of changes. And those changes, because they're all being evaluated within the swarm, are filtered as innovations. Those are, that's how entrepreneurs innovate. But that's how their impact is so massive, is the swarming phenomena and looking at each other and seeing what works, and that's what gets multiplied. And, and so the, that's the more important realization of, uh, and, of what we should be appreciating and, and should be encouraging and should be thinking about differently because it's not the Elon Musk uh, and Tesla because he bought, Tesla was a little company when he bought it. Right, and actually earlier this week I was at the Techonomy event and uh, I talked to Peter Rawlinson who was the original engineer at Tesla, mm -hmm. invented the, the Tesla S before Musk even showed up. He has a new company now, Lucid Motors. So, But, 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 but talking about the, um, the subtitle of the book, the, your book is called The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value, that's Musk's that's the story of Musk's life and also the story of Steve Jobs's life, their relentless mm -hmm. quest for value. And I wonder in terms of defining a, a good entrepreneur, back to your question at the beginning of the book and that you were asked at your first day of teaching at Princeton, we might borrow some wisdom from Steve Jobs is that given the role of the crowd in this relentless quest for innovation, uh, the good entrepreneur is the entrepreneur who copies others. Uh, Jobs was never shy to admit that. Uh, mm -hmm. He, he yeah. supposedly, quote unquote, invented the mouse, although, of course, he mm -hmm. stole it yeah. uh, from Xerox uh, Park. Uh, many of the other things he stole and he wasn't shy to admit it. So so is the good entrepreneur like Jobs, the one who borrows from others, who recognizes that no idea is ever original and they're always part of a crowd. 
uh, I believe the successful entrepreneurs are that. I, I, I believe to be a good entrepreneur, you also need to make sure that what you're copying isn't copying a lot of bad unintended consequences. So that's, that's another finding, important finding about this collective behavior is that it creates collective, it leaves behind collective messes. Um, you know, cut, consumer, um, you know, uh, losses like, um, you know, debt or uh, workplace injuries, uh, pollution, uh, you know, poor, poor wages. Help. I mean, uh, you, you, yeah. you, you've you written a couple of books before, one called Startup Leadership and another Building on Bedrock, uh, uh, which is uh, what Sam Walton, Walt Disney, and other great self-made entrepreneurs can teach us about building valuable companies. But speaking about Sam Walton, um, Derek, we did a, a, a show yesterday uh, with Rick Wartzman, who has a new book out on Walmart called Still Broke, mm -hmm. which while acknowledging some of Walmart's innovations, reminds everyone that Walmart most of the people who work at Walmart are still broke. They, they, they don't earn enough money. What's so great then about innovators like Sam Waltman? He's pre-Musk, pre-Steve Jobs. Yep. But um, he, he wasn't a, a great man, was he? Uh, at least a great... Well, I mean, I guess he was a great entrepreneur, but maybe not quite a great man. Well, uh, I think he was greater than most. Uh, in his lifetime, so Sam Walton's been, you know, passed away almost 30 years ago now. And what Walmart was already an enormous, uh, you know, enterprise, but it was still run as Sam Walton's, you know. Corner store. I mean, yeah. it was a mythological, he, he was a brilliant marketer. Well, he, he, but he, he also, well, he was a brilliant copier. So he, he would brazenly go into competitors' stores and, you know, uh, grab the store manager and, and get the store manager to take him in the warehouse to look at the returned goods. And, 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 and then went back and told the managers, oh, yeah, well, we better make sure we don't do that. But, but that said, he also walked the floor of his stores, all of his stores, constantly. He was in the office only two days a week and he walked the floor of, of stores all over the country three days a week, talking to his employees, making sure that they actually did have living wages. So back, back when he was running it, they care, he cared and the company cared more for their employees than they do now. And that's, that's important to realize. Because an entrepreneurial organization does not is not a profit maximizing organization. Sam Walton did not maximize profits. He cared about profits, absolutely, but he cared more about his reputation. It's it's about reputation maximization that entrepreneurs care about. When they turn it over to professional managers, then it's risk avoidance and profit maximization. So. It, 
you know, Walmart has diverged since Sam Walton passed away. Uh, and when I asked Waltzman at the end of the our conversation what books he recommended, one of the books he recommended was one by Abigail Disney revealing the truth about Walt Disney. He was another of the entrepreneurs you call out in Building on Bedrock. Is there one entrepreneur, Derek, for you who captures more than anything else? I mean, no one's perfect. But is there one entrepreneur in either American or non-American history in your book, um, The Entrepreneurs, that somehow captures what it is to be a good entrepreneur in this relentless quest for value? Um, my favorite is Josiah Wedgwood. Um, you know, we, we know... A British entrepreneur. A British entrepreneur, and we know him for his vases and his, his ceramics. Uh, but he, he worked relentlessly in close association with his wife. So they were a team. He, he took good care of his employees, both, you know, men and women. He, he, he created inline factory production to make it easier for the workers to do their jobs and, um, and the like, he provided housing for his employees, and um, and he was great at figuring out taste. And he created the first brand, the Queensware. Um, and by the way, his his store he created modern the modern shopping experience with stores and you know salespeople that walk the floor and the like. And his store design was copied by Steve Jobs, the Apple Store is a updated version of Wedgwood's stores from the 1790s in London. And um, so, so I consider him the, the all-time uh, best example of an entrepreneur. That's why I wrote the article about Steve Jobs on the Wedgwood scale. Right. So uh, Steve Jobs doesn't presumably come out very good on the Wedgwood innovation scale. Is one problem with uh, entrepreneurs in, in America in 20th century, maybe even 19th century capitalism, that they assume it's maybe it's the Carnegie scale, which Gates and even Steve Jobs existed on, that they spend half their life amassing massive wealth, um, realizing this um, relentless quest for value, and then they spend the second half of their life giving the money away. Is there a need to combine these two lives, perhaps as Wedgwood did, to create responsible companies, giving back, and at the same time, creating value? Yes, absolutely. So there's Carnegie, hey, I'll absolve all my, you know, the bad things that I did as an entrepreneur by giving away all my wealth in my lifetime. And that's what he says in his book. Um, that's not going to work because entrepreneurs are creating such problems, existential problems now on such a scale that we're not going to survive uh, as a planet uh, many more innovation cycles uh, where entrepreneurs disregard the unintended consequences of their actions. We, we have to hold them accountable or somehow make them feel accountable. And 
because the, these unintended consequences cannot propagate any further. Um, what we, we will threaten, you know, the fabric of society will will threaten the fabric of our planet. Entrepreneurs, because they operate on such a massive scale, you know, can do that. So we, we have to um, reorient entrepreneurs in in wanting, feeling that respect that they crave, that acknowledgement that they crave. We have to get them to focus on saving the planet and, and being rewarded for that and recognized for that. Yeah, that's an important message, a very important message, profoundly important message, of course, Derek, which also came out of the David Kirkpatrick's Techonomy event this week in uh, in Sonoma. I think you and David should talk. Very interesting conversation. Uh, congratulations on the new book, The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value. Uh, what else, Derek, are you reading? What other books would you recommend our viewers and, uh, and listeners? Well, I like Daniel Kahneman's Noise. Um, he, he has such phenomenal insight into uh, the, the workings of, of people and societies and, and how we think. Uh, so I really like that. Of course, uh, I was very taken by the dawn of everything, the new history of humanity. Mm. I, I, you know, that, that the Graybow book, we, we couldn't get Graybow, of course, sadly, because he wasn't available, but we did have a show about that book. Yeah. So uh, very profound uh, questions about how we think about things and how we tend to narrow them down in our own, you know, um, uh, ego. Uh, and, and I think we do that a little bit in how we think about entrepreneurs as well. So I, I was, I resonated greatly with that book.